1: Teaching online is different from teaching in face. Learning online is different from learning inside the classroom. they're they're completely different. And you know, some people can make the trans- transition. Um, some people excel in the online environment. Some people excel in the traditional environment. Both teaching and as a student.
2: Welcome to E Weekly, and this is your host Todd speaking. And. This week, we're starting our education series with Capella University, and today we have with us uh, Dr. Michael Kemp and Dr. Charles Hilleman. Yeah, it's going to be a great conversation. Just kind of, we're going to get into the history of uh, emergency management education, and then what the practitioners are, and, and just kind of all that stuff we've been talking about on the EM student side of this emergency management podcast. So... Well, both of you, welcome to Ian Weekly and Mike. You want to start with you?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having us. My name's uh, Dr. Michael Kemp. I'm the faculty chair for the emergency management uh, program at Capella University. We have uh, both a master's program, a PhD program, and a professional doctorate at emergency management. My background is I've been in the public safety arena since since 1993. I've uh, been working strictly for Capella. Uh, since 2010 as the, the faculty chair, and academically, I was one of the, the first uh, folks to come out with a, a PhD in emergency management. So I, I've been uh, been
2: involved in the field quite a long time now. So, and in- introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about your background as well.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Charlene Hilleman, and I am the Dean of the School of Public Service Leadership at Capella University. I've been with Capella now for 12 years. My background, my educational background is in criminal justice and computer information systems as well as public administration. So I spent many years working in the healthcare IT industry and our sort of um, use of emergency management came around preparing for disasters based on the fact that I was um, living in Florida and working in Florida and we often had to go through you know, drills as well as real life preparedness based on the various storms, tropical storms, depressions, hurricanes, et cetera, that would head our way and securing our information technology and um, ensuring that the redundancy and backups were in place.
2: So the history of emergency management education is kind of spotted, if you will. Realistically, it started back in the sociology degree programs and then it kind of moved on to maybe some criminal justice added in there and a little fire science added in there and it depends on where you go it's kind of doesn't even know where it sits sometimes in departments you know i teach at uh, at a community college and then i'm going to teach at uci this this fall and both of those are now kind of in their own department, even though the UCI program still kind of falls into this facilities and general overall management uh, position. How did Mike, and I think we'll go back to Michael, how did we get from there to now where you see a bunch of programs where it's, uh, you can, there's a bunch of schools out there now that have emergency management in their own division or department. And then, but we're still having sociologists. Uh, teaching the port programs and now we're starting to see emergency managers come out uh, with like you with phds uh, can you talk a little bit about that history and where we are today yeah yeah absolutely
1: you know it, it really all started uh, the first dissertation kind of laid down the, the foundation of the Halifax explosion uh, by a guy by the name of Prince who was studying had a local disaster by him uh, that happened in his area then then decided to study it. That was really the first inkling in, into disaster research, but the real progress came probably in the, the 1950s with, uh, and these are familiar names with anybody that follows emergency management, uh, with E.L. Quarantelli and, and Russell Dines. They really started doing military studies looking at the effects of how disaster types are wartime type scenarios, uh, how the uh, citizens might be impacted or react to to wartime scenarios, and that really laid the foundation of of emergency management disaster research. Of course, yeah, uh, okay. Uh, that that type of research kind of laid. Uh, Mike, of
2: course, Mike, you know. Mike, you're you're breaking up just a little bit. Oh, sorry.
1: Let me let me move everything a little bit closer to me and see if that works better. Uh, that really laid down. That was kind of the first. So so Quarantelli Dines they were really what we would consider the first generation academic emergency management or disaster researchers. Gilbert White, you got to throw Gilbert White in there as well, Joe Scanlon and a couple others. Uh, but they really their students were, you know, took the mantle and kind of kind of ran from there and then they started laying down a real heavy foundation of disaster research. And uh, those are people like Dennis Maletti Oh, shoot. Of course, you know, he put me on the spot and, and the names don't come to me right away. But Thomas Drayback, uh, those, those type of folks. And of course, then they had, you know, some students that, that, uh, that third generation. And a lot of things happened in between the, the, the second generation where they were doing all sorts of research out there and whatnot. You probably talked about K Goss and FEMA Higher Education on your show probably many times. Mm-hmm. And that was really. That was really the start, in my opinion, of emergency management as an academic program. What was going on at the time is we have this layer, or this foundation of research that was out there, but it really wasn't being applied in disaster situations. Uh, we were really just utilizing maybe best practices or there wasn't a unified body of knowledge out there. And so K. Goss, uh was really the, the spearhead of the, the, the maturation uh, between creating academic programs and uh, making the, the creation of those academic programs that emergency managers could come, learn about those foundations out there, then apply them in the real world. And that was the start of the emergency management programs in that. And of course, given where they, the research had lied, um, mainly in that sociology field, it was only you know natural that, that sociology kind of took the mantle, if you will. And, uh, created those first programs, you know, kick ahead 10 years after 1994 when that first program came in. Well, then you had 9-11 come in. And then, of course, a lot of focus came on the field. And just like it, it did in the practical field, in the academic field, it kind of, it kind of laid in the, I don't want to say criminal side, uh, but more of that law enforcement side. That's the way I should say it, that law enforcement side. So then we started get seeing a lot of emergency management programs laying in criminal justice field. we always had the sociology field, and then of course the geology field. Gilbert White, I should have have probably mentioned him back in the day as well. Um, But that's why we started getting to where we were. But there's an important thing that I I think that the listeners have to understand. That first generation laid that foundation down. That second uh, generation of emergency managers, they really did the, 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 the yeoman work there of getting out and doing the research. That research has continued That third generation, or what I call that third generation of emergency managers, are those ones that are being educated in the programs by emergency management faculty. And and that's really where we're going, and that's really what you were saying. You know, I, I have to credit and I have to give a shout out to my alma mater, North Dakota State University, where they were really recognized as having the first degree program in emergency management at the PhD level. And once we started seeing those PhD uh, emergency managers uh, come out, those scattered field that you were talking about, they started being filled up with professors that actually have a degree in emergency management. And now we've seen the consolidation of degrees, you know, in emergency management, true programs flourish. So there's a long answer to a very complicated question.
2: It's <laughs> very true. So Dr. Hillman, so... No, like you, uh, my background is public administration, education-wise, uh, and I and I moved into emergency management. How do you see the transition for people like me with my public administration background into uh, the more academic side of with emergency management?
0: Well, I think the public administration side definitely lays a good foundation in understanding complex bureaucracies and how organizations in general work. And having that understanding from an academic and professional side prepares you for dealing with what you're going to face once you're in the field. Because something that seems simple to a civilian or someone in the private sector would all of a sudden become very complicated. And having that understanding of what you're dealing with is quite helpful. And therefore, you've already gotten half the battle won. (laughs) So now it's just the focus on what the research actually says in emergency management and how to apply that research. So I think it's an easy transition and you should have no problem with transitioning from that. And I actually think you'll bring something to the table that. Others may not have because the complexities of our all different layers of our government work is important because what you see is a lot of times that fight for jurisdiction in a disaster, whether it's the federal. Agents will come in, FEMA exact, to be precise, and wanna take over something that the state may be handling or the city would be handling, and then the back and forth and the tussle could often affect people's lives. And understanding how to navigate those bureaucracies, I think, puts you at a little bit of an advantage over individuals that weren't trained that way.
2: Kind of following up on that, one of the things I've seen specifically in the West Coast is the emergency manager, the position, sits in a whole bunch of different places. In a city that I used to live in, it's the, the city. The, the emergency manager actually was part of the human resources department, and then you have them in public, in public works, and the fire department, and the police department. Some work directly for the city manager, while some work for the CEO's office. Where do you see a, a a good fit for the role of the true emergency manager now that we're moving into that generation?
0: Absent being able to create an entire department of emergency management, I like it sitting in public safety. And the reason why I say that is the individuals that are working direct in public safety often get the first um, notifications of anything that's happening. And they're more connected to the local law enforcement, to uh, state level law enforcement. They get national feed and information. So I think that's the first place that I would put emergency managers if I couldn't just create a separate department to house them.
2: One of the things I noticed, and and this has happened to me uh, when I worked, and I still do for that matter, I work in emergency management in the police department is I have tended over the years to shift from just emergency management type stuff to a lot of law enforcement centric side of of the house. And I have to force myself to stop thinking in that mindset, you know, and I see some of my partners that are in the fire department, of course, here in California it makes sense because our most of our disasters are fires, but really go towards like the fire side. How do you think that those of us that are practitioners can kind of stop getting into that, making ourselves go one track or the other?
0: It's <laughs> funny that you say that. I wonder the same thing, the reason why I say that is we all have that inner law enforcement in us. Uh, you know, you've seen stories in the news or how the neighborhood watch person becomes t- to think that they're the actual police of the community or just the person checking IDs can get out of control. And it's, it's, it's a challenge because the power and the authority and the connectedness to being able to direct citizens just naturally goes to everyone. And I think what happens is if the agency or the organization is not making a concerted effort to keep the roles distinguished and separate you're always going to get that bleed over and i think it's just natural because we all want to be csi or something like that you know
2: <laughs> so it's just so natural so, so that's, that's a whole nother study right there that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do see, I think sometimes, though, it's driven also by the uh, the command structure, right? Because that's kind of what, like, my chief, for instance, and obviously he is, you know, chief, and he sees safety in, realistically, the command and control of law enforcement. And then, obviously, when you're in the fire department, you see the safety portion in the idea of fire prevention, and um, that type of stuff. It, you know, what, what I did do like here, and this is one of the things that we do in California, in Orange County, California, really well, is we get together once a month and uh, we talk to each other as emergency managers and really get best practices and do a lot of uh, mutual aid, if you will, uh, training and discussions and really work in that, that EM space there. And I think that's part of it as well as keeps us not in that silo. You know, and I think as emergency managers in other places, I really highly recommend to get out and talk to, if not through organizations like IAEM or your local emergency management organization or or associations that you really should reach out to your your other EMs and and converse with people that are in the same space as you because, you know, sitting around one group of people, you're going to start going with that mindset. So let's go a little bit to the academic side of stuff. What do you guys look at when you're looking for someone to go into a PhD program? Who would you recommend that you would like recruit to come into a program like that?
0: Are you gearing that question towards me or to Dr. Campbell?
2: Either, either one, whoever wants to take it. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I got you. Okay. There I was. Okay. Sorry. I was talking. It really depends on the, what is
1: the goal? of the student. At Capella we call our students learners, but it really depends on what is the goal. That's the conversation I always have first. Why are you going into that field? Uh, why are you going into it at at the at the doctorate level? And and the reasons are are usually usually the same. There's a certain percentage of people that their lifelong goal was to attain that highest degree possible and, and they're going into it for for those purposes. And and that's great. You know, the other reason is is that people are looking to to go into that degree because at some point in their career maybe now and maybe a little bit later they want to teach in a university setting. And then the third reason is is people are extremely interested in the research side of the house and, and they want to come in and you know get the skills, get the credential, get the criteria down that so when they do a they know how to research and when they do research that people are going to take them, them seriously. And those are the the real the real reasons. So once you understand what is your what is your reason to go into it? Uh, then it's as simple as, as starting to look at, okay, are you ready to make the time commitment? And, and, and kind of go down those and, and type of questions and, and make sure that, that that person is really is ready to, to take on that commitment. Because, you know, taking on a, a doctorate degree is not an easy task. If it was an easy task, you know, as they say, everybody would have a doctorate degree. Uh, that Not everybody has a doctorate degree, not everybody should have a doctorate degree, not everybody wants a doctorate degree, and that's all fine. Uh, but if you're ready to get that doctorate degree and you're ready to make that commitment, then, you know, I encourage you to do it. Um, another conversation, though, that you have to have is, are your goals, what I was saying, do you really need that degree to fulfill your goals? And those are the type of conversations that we have well, when someone's looking. But as far as personal characteristics or whatnot, really, do you have the ambition are you really going to see it through its finish? Because anybody that's taken, uh, that has a doctorate degree, they're, they're going to tell you at some point in that journey, you're going to want to quit. And that's just how it is. And I say that smiling because it's difficult. It really is difficult. You know, only, a, only a certain percentage of people finish. So if your goals line up where you need that degree to further your career or to fulfill that lifelong goal of that, Absolutely. Then are you ready to make that commitment? At least that's what I say. And and of course you ask this, this question to anybody that, that's obtained the degree and you're going to get a, a thousand different answers. But Charlene, I don't know if you have anything you'd want to add to that.
0: I actually do. I, I was just going to add on top of the fact that you have to decide whether the doctorate is really what you're looking for. You have to think about what do you want from the doctorate because it all depends. If you're looking for the ability to move up in your current department or become a head of an agency, go into consulting, something like that, that's more practitioner-based and go for an applied doctorate. But if you're really looking to add something to the body of knowledge and the research, then you need a PhD. And I think what happens is a lot of times people determine they want a doctorate and they want that terminal degree, but they're not sure of the purpose that they're going to use it for. And that's really important to know the purpose before you embark on the endeavor because that'll determine which path you take. We have both options, but some schools have one or the other. And then it becomes even more important to know what you're going to use that doctorate for beyond self-actualization because self-actualization can get really old, like two years into the coursework. you know like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling so bad about myself right now. So it's so important to have a a desire beyond self-actualization. I tell people that all the time. You don't go down that doctorate path just because you want to feel really good about yourself. You have to have a purpose for it at the end of the day, like Dr. Kemp already alluded to.
2: So somebody who wants to get into the actual research, adding to the body of work of emergency management, really promoting and the career field of emergency management's relatively young, right? And so we're looking for that next generation of people coming out of school, getting their PhDs and really doing the academic rigor and research for emergency management. How do you kind of steer somebody in that direction to say, "Hey, look at this is you're awesome, you're going to do great and we would like you to do more research than do practitioner because there's two two different really paths there, right? I mean I don't want to say steer them, but how do you encourage somebody to go into the research side instead of the, uh, the practitioner side? The rest of that story, when we'll return from our break.
1: Emergency managers need exercise in order to test preparedness and efficiency during an emergency situation.
0: TTX Vault provides pre-assembled, pre-filled out tabletops, drills, and functionals so you
1: can exercise more effectively and at a reduced cost. With TTX Vault, customers receive either a disk or flash drive pre-uploaded with the exercise of their choice. Print out the documents, review, fill in the information, and you are ready to execute the exercise. Your first step to preparedness is going to ttxvault.com. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter.
2: Welcome back from that quick break, and thank you so much for listening to the sponsors because without them, we couldn't do what we're doing here at EM Weekly. And hit them up. Check them out. Say hi. Tell them that uh, we sent you. Now for the rest of the story. But how do you encourage somebody to go into the research side instead of the, uh, the practitioner side?
1: Well, yeah, sure. No, that's... Ultimately, it's the individual's decision, you know, right. obviously. But when you're teaching courses or even, you know, all of, all of our faculty at, at Capella are, are what I call, you know, those pracademics. We're, we're practitioners. So we have one foot in the practical field either doing consulting or working for the various agencies or, or, and we all have that terminal PhD degree, most of us in emergency management. And while you're out in the field or in the classroom, you see signs of folks Uh, That are kind of that you say, uh, you know, that person would be a great, great researcher or or great, you know, is a great uh, practitioner or that person really has the the skills and ability to, to be, you know, to teach or whatnot. You see those type of things and and you just have a conversation and we, you know so informally you'll say hey have you ever thought about this and and going down this practitioner field or this academic field and, and then kind of lay it out and this is where you kind of go you know you can do with that degree and i think you would be great type of stuff and and let the chips fall where they may now when when of course when you know people say that they want to go down that field you know sometimes we're able to to assist with uh, you know, if they're taking their master's and, and whatnot, we're able to offer scholarship here and there and, and help encourage people down that. So, you know, there's the informal way where you have that conversation and, and sometimes we're fortunate to offer scholarships off uh, uh, to, to formalize that for people. But ultimately, it's the individual decision and, and what they want to do. Having those conversations is, is really, you know, just opening up the eyes. A lot of times, it's interesting, Todd, we'll have a, I'll have a conversation we will say, hey, have you ever thought about, and people's eyes will light up. And they're like, you know, I never really thought about it until you brought it up. And then I really started thinking about it. And just you believing in me got me got me thinking about it. And now I really want to do it. So it's really neat when that happens. But that's really how it happens.
0: I was going to add a little bit to what was already stated. Before I became the dean, I was a chair in public administration. Before that, I was research faculty at Capella. And research faculty is an interesting space it's kind of like the math professor. No one likes the research professor because <laughs> <laughs> you're the one that's tasked with telling them that what you want to do is not practical or your methodology doesn't master your research question or the data will never answer the question and all those other things no one wants to hear, right? But um, what I encountered when we did our residencies, because we do have face to face interaction as we help learners to build their research, what I encountered were practitioners that struggled to think outside of the practical domain of what they did at work, Mm. and to be able to think that their scenario was not representative of the entire universe of how things happened. And so I found myself steering people in the opposite direction, and what I meant by that were individuals that were in a PhD program that I could already tell because of their, their mindset, and the way they were conditioned to thinking they weren't going to be able to adapt to the more flexible mindset that you need to do a PhD. Mm. And I said, no, I think you really need an applied doctor. (laughs) And I would have to redirect them the other way. I think it's a special person that can obtain a PhD in emergency management and hats off to Dr. Kemp, especially doing it so early in the field, because you have to struggle to figure out what are the questions that need to be answered and how do you answer them to really extend the literature and not just answer the same questions that's already been asked. And sometimes even figuring out what needs to be asked. And so I think right now we're probably at the crossroads where you almost need someone that's not a practitioner who hasn't been in the field to enter into the PhD domain so that they're not already pigeonholed into a certain mindset. Does that
2: make sense? It does. You know, and and that kind of goes back to this conversation. That kind of goes back to a conversation that I was on, on Facebook conversation. So as much as you converse there in a, an emergency management uh, chat that was going on and they're bringing up PhD programs for emergency managers. And I was interested to hear some of what the people who were EMs were saying about, about PhD programs. And it kind of goes back to what you're saying. Some of them were like, oh, you know, it was a little wishy-washy or, you know, some of them were kind of complaining, you know, that some of the stuff they're talking about, you know, didn't really make sense to them in a practical sense, you know, and I think maybe that's because that we are, as a practitioner... We kind of go all over the place a little bit. That's just sort of what our job is. It's it's a really great job for somebody who has ADD because every thirty seconds your your job changes. But you know that that makes sense to that that that's the conversation that was happening over there because ash practitioners we kind of do get set in our ways and we kind of you know. It takes a while for us to get, uh, you know, the academic side coming to us and saying, okay, now we do agree with you. You know, you, you talk about Dennis Smolletti and I've heard him speak and we've actually had him out here in Orange County working in small group with us on communication. And it's amazing to listen to him speak because he has the ability to take these grand research ideas and as I say, dumb them down for the, those of us that are in the field to be able to, to grab onto and listen to and understand, you know, and, and I think that what you're saying regarding some people as practitioners, really, the research to them just doesn't make sense. And that, that kind of goes along with what people are saying. I, I want to kind of switch gears a little bit here and talk a, a talk about the academic rigor of online education. And it's been a conversation that, that we've been having in, in my circles for a little bit. And I moved from when I was teaching at the community, well, I still teach there, from teaching at Coastline Community College from a traditional classroom class that met, you know, once a week for three hours to an online environment and where we're teaching military, we're teaching all over the place, we have more people come into the classroom and it, it's a different, a different way of teaching. And then as a teacher, it took me a good, two, three years to really embrace and understand and, and get into what it means to be teaching online. As an online PhD program and and masters program that you guys have, how do you ensure the academic rigor for your programs?
1: Well Todd, I think that you're exactly right. You know in an online program is teaching online is different from teaching in face. Learning online is different from learning inside the classroom they're they're completely different and you know some people can make the trans, transition um, some people excel in the online environment some people excel in the traditional environment both teaching as, as a student but as far as ensuring that you have the academic rigor you know it, it, it's really not that different than uh, the traditional model you you know you lay out your program outcomes and your, your program competencies That are in line with the field and the profession and the degree, you know. So it's aligned to the proper degree, and then you create your lessons, your your teaching, and your courses around those items. So it's not any different to creating a program, but you have to have different considerations. And I mean, you have to if, if you're talking about, you know, how do we make sure that the well, what I was saying is. If you're writing a paper in a traditional setting and versus writing a paper in an online setting, they're, they're going to be graded the same. So there really isn't a difference in the rigor of what's expected on you know, an environment versus a, a traditional environment. It's the support and how you structure the classes that, that are really, really different. And one of the complaints of, that you hear in an online environment is that I feel isolated because I don't see, you know, my, my peers. I don't sit by them in, in, in the class, uh, next to day. So when you create an online program, you've got to cre- you've got to make sure that you create a, a community, a social community, so that those learners that come into that online class, they have a place, they have, uh, instances where they can communicate back and forth, uh, with their classmates. So it's just those type of things that you do to create, you know, to enhance that online environment. You know, but some of the benefits of of an online environment uh, that that you may not get in that traditional environment is you know we have students you know that are the uh, director of I don't want to give anybody's positions away uh, but the director of said agency or the business continuity manager for such corporation or state director. So, because of that reach that online has, you know, your biggest, your, your biggest asset that you have is, is your learners in the sense that you might be sitting right next to the person that can hire you. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, I really get I'm not put off, but I, re, I really don't buy the argument that there is a difference in rigor between the two. You can have a bad online program, and it's just a bad online program. You can have a bad traditional program, and it's just a bad traditional program. Likewise, you can have a great online program, and it's great online. You, you see where I'm going with yeah, that? Yeah, for sure. It, 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 it doesn't, the format isn't there. It's the institution that's running the program. That's what's important. And if you know what you're doing, you, you gear the support that supports whatever traditional or online, you're going to be okay. But the problem that, that I see is really is that you have a lot of traditional programs that are moving into the online space and they just haven't figured out that those support mechanisms that they need to support online learners, because they're learning, it's new.
0: Good point, Michael, because that's what I was going to actually talk about is that as traditional institutions move into the online um, arena, you have the problem with the faculty that are used to teaching online and haven't quite adapted the nuances of the difference. And so they want to do the same thing, a paper, a homework assignment, a quiz, and I'm not saying that you don't do those things, but then that becomes really isolating because you get a quiz one week, you have a homework assignment the next week, you have a paper the next week, and that's it. So they've just taken their syllabi from the face-to-face environment dropped it online and want to do the same things and, and not capturing the fact that you're not, in front of this student or learner. So how is this person going to be engaged in this material without the dialogue? So I think I have heard that more and more traditional institutions are wanting to understand how you harness what's taking place in the lecture hall and put that online so that they're they're doing these videos. A lot of times and having recorded lectures, And I'm sure that probably a good percentage of those students don't ever listen to those recorded lectures because could you imagine how how they feel like, okay, if I was in class, I'd listen to this person for an hour and now you're going to record them for an hour and you think I'm going to sit there for an hour and listen to this. So the innovation piece is I think where the transition is starting to struggle. Whereas those of us that have been doing online for a long time, we've already captured that innovation piece. We already have virtual environments for our learners to play in and to um, act out real world, world scenarios and then maybe write those up or discuss those or use it to alter how they create their final paper. So I think they do have a little bit of catching up to do, not saying that one environment is better than the other. I'm not saying that for some people, the state or traditional school is the right fit. For other people, a school like us was the right fit. But I think where we have an advantage is because this is all we've ever done. So we've pretty much captured how you deliver content in an online environment with rigor and while keeping
2: learners engaged. What I think is cool about the online environment is that you can have somebody who's in Maine and having a conversation with somebody who's in, you know, California, and you get to learn the different aspects of, of what each each area is doing, because it's really done differently in Maine than it is done in California or in Alaska or in Hawaii. You know, so that, I found that kind of cool regarding online education. And and as, like I said, as a as an instructor who teaches online, I get to learn from all my students that are from all over the place and ask those those cool questions. So I really, I like the idea. And you're right, you're starting to see even high schools offering um, online education, and some of it hybrid, uh, some of it, tradi- you know, some of it, 100% online. So I think you're seeing more and more younger students, obviously, moving towards that online environment. You know, I think about my daughter who's five, and she knows how to pick up an iPad and log on, find what she wants to do. And she has, um, we have a couple of the the education programs that are on there, like um, ABC Mouse, for instance. She gets on the ABC Mouse, she does her her little classes on there, and knows how to print the certificate and all that kind of stuff. So I think. As we go further and further down, uh, you know, into the into the future, you're going to see more and more people understand and embrace the concepts of online education. So, it's really kind of cool that you guys were a forefront and and really a pioneer into into that education. So, if somebody wanted to get a hold of, of you guys and, and learn more about your programs, how how could they find you?
1: Well, the easiest is is, is Google. You know, just just <laughs> Google. Uh, Throw it in the, throw it in the Google Google capella University uh, Emergency management program and you're going to get a thousand results and of course you know we're on all the social medias uh, as well um, you know but uh, our email I'm trying to bring it up I believe it's just capella.com but but our dedu let me let me look unless you have it off the top of your head Charlie.
0: Did you want our URL is that what you're talking about? yeah www.capella.edu there we go <laughs> yes so yeah that's that's the easiest way and the emergency management program you'll find all the necessary information regarding our faculty as well as uh, dr Kemp's information and he loves to talk emergency management so if anyone has any questions or just trying to think through what their professional next steps would be dr Kemp is your man
2: <laughs> all right so
1: you know and I get a lot of yeah. I get a lot of people will contact me on LinkedIn or, or whatever. And, uh, I'm in, I'm open, you know, I'll, I usually give my phone number out there and, and, uh, whatever format they choose. And I probably have a conversation every other day with a, with a potential student or someone that just wants to talk. Hey, I'm thinking about getting into it. And, and can I, can I pick your brain type of deal? And I'm, I'm very open to do that. I'm more than happy to do that. I love doing
2: it. Awesome. Okay. So here's the, uh, here's the toughest question of the day for, for everybody. All right. What book or books would you recommend to somebody who is wants to get into emergency management or leadership?
1: Oh, that is a tough question because it depends on the background, but it's still a it's an, it's an old book, but it's it's a classic book and I say Angry Earth almost almost every time. And the reason that I say Angry Earth especially for for when I'm talking Mostly to my practitioners that, that want to get in, is because it really does show that emergency management just isn't the response aspect. Emergency management, you know, is a 365 all the way around the block, every aspect, uh, it touches every aspect of society. And that book really brings the social uh, side into emergency management and tells you, you know, if you want to change, you want to reduce risk. You want to start creating resilient communities. You've got to understand how disasters impact society at the basic level and at, and, and the complexities of it. So, Angry Earth is, even though it's an oldie, it still hands down my favorite book to to promote out there. Which I should be promoting my own books, but hey, Angry Earth.
2: <laughs>
0: so I was thinking, and. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I guess I'd have to lean on Michael since that is primarily his, his discipline. I probably would um, think of an article or something before I thought of a book. So Sure, articles, he's are, reading, articles are good. Any so he's, he was talking about Angry Earth and I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't read that.
2: <laughs> I wrote it down too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was like, I didn't read that. I should read that one. Yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh I sure can't, sorry.
2: That's why I always call this the hardest question. Yeah, it's definitely Well you know I, I
1: think if you if you look at anything that has to do with how societies create disaster. Obviously, when we're talking, especially when we're talking natural disaster, you know, we always think of the water, the fire, the wind, the snow, you know, the element, the natural side of it. But, you know, what we never think about, especially those outside of the field, I shouldn't say that for us in the field because we're getting better at this every day. We seldom generally don't think about the human element beyond the, the suffering and the response. And a lot of disasters situations, we create our own vulnerabilities and, and disasters simply take advantage of those vulnerabilities. And the more vulnerability that we have, the, the disaster, the consequences of the disaster is usually greater. And once we start thinking that way and understanding those concepts, then we can look at mitigating disasters. And, and we know from the studies that are out there that you know, FEMA will say that for every dollar of mitigation you spend, you save four dollars in response. Well, my my own research in the Red River Valley on flooding in municipalities kicks that number up to high as seven dollars. Mm-hmm. And so there's something there. You know that that's been reproduced over and over again that the the dollars that you save in mitigation, you know, save, and that's dollars also think of the misery that it saves and the lives it saves and that you can't put a number on. And the only way you can get to that point where that's more important, because let's face it, the response is sexy, right? Right. Everybody loves the response. We were talking about this earlier. You know, when the response happens, you turn into the fire mode, you turn into the police mode, you turn into that that command control mode to get things done and save lives and, and protect property. And, you know, that's kind of what draws people. But the reality is, if we can prevent those or diminish those impacts from happening in the first place, then we're really doing our job and we're really getting uh, the, the, the most bang for our buck, if you will. So any article that, that focuses on those relationships, that's what I would say. It doesn't have to be angry or anything that makes those connections, I think is good.
0: I think you helped me, Michael, think about the article I was thinking about, (laughs) because I couldn't remember the whole title. It's, you know, it's a Creating Resilient Cities article, but the first part is what I couldn't remember. So it's Urban Hazard Mitigation, Creating Resilient Cities.
2: Oh, wow. Because
0: I was just stuck in the Creating Resilient Cities, and I knew that wasn't the full title. And I was like, okay, I know what it is now. So it's Urban Hazard Mitigation, Creating Resilient Cities. It's kind of old. But that was um, sort of like one of those first articles that I really read in the field. And since then, there's been other articles related to creating resilient communities. And, you know, there's been a series of resilient communities type of articles afterwards. So it goes back to what Michael said is the, the before planning process. And I think we all focus on, on the actual disaster, but we haven't created communities that are prepared to deal with the disasters.
2: You know, that's so right, you, you know, regarding not creating communities. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, uh, Administrator Long from FEMA really wants to focus on creating the resilient city, you know, the resilient people with with emergency management. And I just actually talked to another person the other day regarding civil defense and how we moved away from that civil defense model to where each community and each individual had responsibility for their own preparedness, and then to this whole thing of where people believe that FEMA is coming in to, to, uh, to save the day, which is not really their role. But that's a really good point, the, the creating resilient cities. I'm glad that you, you put that one out there because that's a, I, I really recommend anybody who's doing any kind of research or reading in emergency management that, that they really embrace the concept of resiliency and, and what that means. Before I let you guys go, is there anything that you'd like to say to the emergency manager out there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would say, you know, I was talking earlier about the first, second, and third generation emergency managers, and we've really taken the profession, and I, I can call it a profession proudly uh, to, to to not get into a new, new debate, but I think we are there, that the the, the scholar practitioner, the, the, the work between the academic and the practitioner is so important to this profession and and, and to keep it growing, that when there's opportunities to do internships, or there's opportunities to allow a a researcher in to do research, you know, look for those opportunities and and embrace them. And also, you know, we owe it to our profession to be educated in our profession. So if you have the opportunity and whatnot, you know, read up, keep up on, on the profession you know, keep learning, keep the continuing education going. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when we're talking about those resilience communities, and we're talking about putting plans in place, we're really responsible for lives. And and we we owe it to the people that we serve. uh, And we owe it to the profession uh, to make it the best profession that we can possibly have. And that takes work. So just don't stop working.
0: What I'd like to share is going back to what you mentioned before when you discussed um, working in the law enforcement environment, public safety environment, how you sort of um, adapt some of those mindsets. I would encourage the emergency manager to do the opposite, to help individuals in a multidisciplinary scenario to adapt some of the principles of emergency management because you have the same power of persuasion that they do. And so try to help your best practices, use your best practices to help them do a better job with what they're doing. And I think there's a great opportunity because everyone's at the table now in in, Coming, as I mentioned, from the healthcare, you have the nurses and the doctors at the table, you have the public safety at the table, you have so many other disciplines that do not understand the principles of emergency management. It's a great opportunity to extend what you already know and help to educate people so that they can go back home and be more prepared and have their family prepared because they won't be able to do their jobs if they're not prepared at home. So use your skills to help the regular everyday citizen become more educated in emergency management and of course to complement what michael says that means you have to be educated in your discipline so i think that's all i have to share
2: well both of you thank you so much for spending time with us today and uh, looking forward to hear from you guys again and if you guys ever want to come back on let me know
0: all right yeah. thank you
2: thank you todd